Welcome to Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. I'm your host, Leonard DiLorenzo. Polka dots and stripes, Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson, the city of Baltimore and championship baseball. There are some things that just don't go together. And it's something like a generally accepted fact that science and religion belong on that list. They don't mix. In a recent study of both practicing Catholic young adults between the ages of 20 and 30 and former Catholic young adults of the same age, one thing they all had in common is that they believe science and religion ultimately conflict with one another. They all think that. And that study represents the norm rather than the exception. If there is a place for religion, it's assumed that it's a place that steers clear of science. Or so it seems. We want to re-examine this apparent certainty. So we are launching a short series here on Church Life Today from the McGrath Institute for Church Life, in which we'll talk with Catholic scientists about science and religion, about questions of faith and reason, and even about the vocation and witness of Catholics who are drawn to the scientific fields with the mission to engage in serious inquiry alongside which the faith of the Church requires no apology. And as usual, I'm your host, Leonard DiLorenzo. Our first guest in this series is Dr. Stephen Barr, professor of physics at the University of Delaware. You might not have read some of his notable research publications like Minimality Conditions and Atmospheric Neutrino Oscillations, or The Search for a Permanent Electric Dipole Moment. But you may have run across some of his very popular and important books, like Modern Physics and Ancient Faith, Science and Religion, the Myth of Conflict, or The Believing Scientist. Dr. Barr obtained his Ph.D. at Princeton University and is a fellow of the American Physical Society. He is also a founding member and the current president of the rapidly growing Society of Catholic Scientists, which brings together leading scientists from all over the globe who seek to answer the call of St. John Paul II to, quote, integrate the worlds of science and religion in their own intellectual and spiritual lives. Dr. Barr, it is a pleasure to have you here with us today. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. You know, because you're a renowned full professor of physics at the University of Delaware and a practicing Catholic, I wanted to start with what is probably a, tic- a typical question, but one that I expect you'll probably deny the premise. How about that for a start? So here we go. Do you find it difficult to reconcile your science and your faith? Not at all. In fact, I find it, I get asked this question a lot as do many Catholic scientists. And we we always find this a strange question because the word reconcile implies that there's a conflict that has to be smoothed over or reconciled. And we don't experience it that way. We, We see faith and science as being in harmony and not needing a reconciliation. So is the better question how to draw out the harmony of science and faith in some way? Yes, and I and the way I see it is that both uh, the Catholic faith and science are ways of making sense of the world. And what makes me a Catholic, and uh, well, one of the things that makes me a Catholic, and one of the things that makes me a scientist, is the the idea that 
everything makes sense, that there, there's, there's some underlying uh, harm, uh, uh, coherence to the world. Uh, that, that, and so both, both and, and a sense of wonder about the world. Those, those make me a scientist and also make me believe in God. Hmm. The same roots. Yeah. But it would be far more typical for somebody to have to give a defense about being religious and being a scientist as opposed to being an atheist and being a scientist. I, I actually think it's strange. I find it strange that many of my colleagues are atheists because when I look at the, the, the beautiful, uh, deep mathematical structure of the laws of physics it, that we see in my field, particle physics, I say, how can they not think that there's some mind behind that? The, the world is, is built upon principles that require very sophisticated and subtle uh, uh, mathematical concepts to, to, to understand. And this, this is not so, so. So how can they not believe in God? To me, I, that, that's the question I'm always asking myself. Right, sort of like a built-up resistance to being persuaded in some way. I don't know. I, yeah. can't, I don't really know why it is. I, I put the shoe on the other foot. You look at the most of the great scientists for the first few hundred years of modern science were believers. Mm. And, and you know, one of my favorite quotes is from uh, uh, Kepler, Johannes Kepler, one of the founders of modern science. And he in, uh, wrote, uh, I thank thee, uh, Lord God, that thou hast allowed me to see the beauty in thy work of creation. Mm. That was the attitude of scientists for hundreds of years, that we're seeing the beauty of of God's creation, we're seeing some glimpsing something of the mind of God in what we study, and many scientists today are still religious uh, and and have that same attitude. Yeah, but to see beauty, that's already even for somebody who doesn't profess religious belief, that seems like the seed or the beginning of some kind of potential religious belief. That it's not just something to observe and to be curious about until you get the the conclusions, but to actually call it beauty, what you see in nature, is something quite different. Right. And actually, you know, many scientists who are atheists will tell you how, that the laws of physics, it's a kind of abstract beauty. I right. mean, it's like uh, not everyone can appreciate the beauty of, of advanced mathematics, just like not everyone can appreciate the beauty of, say, a, a chess masterpiece, because right. there's a lot of technical knowledge. Right. We all see the beauty of a flower or of a beautiful piece of music. But the scientists themselves will, will rhapsodize about how astonishingly beautiful the mathematics is upon which the universe is constructed. Even atheists will say that. Hmm. Well, you've argued time and again that science itself is not the enemy of religion. It's something else that's the enemy, which you describe as scientific materialism. Right. Could you tell us about that? Right. The, 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 what we're up against, so to speak, the, 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 you know, there's the new atheism, and it, there's been a burgeoning movement in the last 20 years or so of uh, very militant atheism, and they have websites, and they have big conferences, <laughs> and so on, and many young people go to these websites and have their faith shaken. What people should understand is the, the, this, this, the, the new atheists aren't just denying the existence of God. They're much more radical than that. They believe everything is matter. That, that matter is all there really is, which means that a human being for them is nothing but a very complicated uh, assembly of atoms, uh, a machine. And so our, our, view, our free will, our, our soul, our, our minds, 
All of that can be explained just by the motion of atoms governed by, by the equations of physics. And that's a very radical view. Um, and so that's what, we're not really up against atheism, against this radical materialist view that there's nothing but atoms and, 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 and molecules, and that's all of reality. That's all you are. Right. So in that sense, it, it doesn't just get rid of God, which is the prime, the prime target here, right? right, with a materialist view, is to get rid of God. But uh, it gets rid of us. It gets rid of us. And there's quotes from, from famous scientists saying that you, your joys, your ambitions, your sense of personal identity, your free will, that's all illusions. You're nothing but molecules. Um, and, and some of them will say, well, you know, it's a useful illusion. You know, uh, maybe evolution implanted in us this illusion because it helps us get through life to believe that we actually exist and mm-hmm. have free will mm-hmm. and so on. But, but really, we're just matter in motion, and that's all it is. So any form of morality in that case would be the result of this sort of evolutionary kind of development. That's also an illusion, according to them. Mm-hmm. And, and when you come right down to it, all morality is based on the premise that we have free will. Mm-hmm. If we're just machines, or if we're just rats in a maze, and everything we're doing is determined by chemistry or physics, then mor- moral concepts lose all their meaning. So if you believe in morality, objective right and wrong, you have to believe really that we have free will. And once you believe we have free will, then you can't explain that if, if it's just physics. Mm-hmm. Physics will not give you that. Mm-hmm. It makes me think this has just come to my mind, it makes me think of sort of the digital space that we all inhabit now in one way or another, and the great concern with uh, psychological influencing or even engineering through the things that we're seeing online, especially in social media space, who's controlling the levers. I wonder if that becomes something like a parable for this scientific materialism. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. The idea that we are just machines, uh, it's, it's made a lot more plausible by, by science fiction because in mm. science fiction you have many characters. Uh, I think uh, one, in the Star, one of the Star Trek series, is Data, is that his name? Who's, it a, is, who's yeah. a robot. Yeah. But that's very common in science right. fiction. Or the Terminator. Right. Uh, and it's interesting. These are all machines played by human actors. Right. They're not really machines. They're, they're, not, they're not really showing that machines can have minds and souls and free will. What they're showing is that people with minds and souls and free will, namely these actors, can pretend to be machines. (laughs) (laughs) But that really has gotten into the uh, mind of a lot of people who more and more ordinary people are beginning to accept the idea that deep down they are just machines themselves, Mm. you know. And that's a very, that's a very... that's a very dangerous idea because it's it's easy to then persuade yourself you don't have responsibility for anything that you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, my you know it's the chemistry in my brain made me do everything that I'm doing. Right, right. Or if you see it outside of yourself, it's whatever's on my schedule. I just have to do that. Yeah, yeah, right. I'm yeah. being run by a schedule or something, yeah. perhaps. So how do you disentangle this? Uh, real science from yeah. this sort of pseudoscience that you're talking about, materialism. Yeah, it, it, materialism is a philosophy, and it, 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 it's not science. That's what people should understand. Scientific materialism isn't science. It's a, it's, it's a philosophical idea that everything is matter. Sci- that's not a statement within science. Mm. I mean, there are many scientists who believe that, but there's also many scientists, I would guess more, who, who, who don't believe in materialism. And there are quite a few scientists who not only are not materialists, but who believe in God, who believe in the soul, who are mm-hmm. religious, who are Catholic, in fact. Mm-hmm. 
I want to pick up on that to remind you you're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. We're talking to Dr. Stephen Barr, professor of physics at the University of Delaware and president of the Society of Catholic Scientists, and you've given us a nice segue to that indeed. You're mentioning that uh, there are scores and scores and hundreds and thousands perhaps of scientists who are believers, and many of them are Catholic, but aren't known. Right. They they uh, perhaps don't identify themselves as Catholic, and perhaps there's impediments to that right. in the academy and in the scientific guilds. To, in some ways, combat that or to make it uh, more possible for scientists to actually name themselves as Catholic, you helped to found the, the Society of Catholic Scientists just a few years ago. You serve as president now. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the society and your hopes for it. Right. So we actually uh, incorporated exactly two years ago, Mm. I think maybe to the day, uh, we started recruiting members in July of 2016, and we're already up to 760 members. And I should emphasize, we have very uh, tough membership uh, criteria. You have to have a PhD in a natural science, uh, life science, physical science, Mm. or mathematics, computer science. or you have to be a grad student working towards a doctorate or an undergrad major. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it, but in spite of the very uh, tough requirements to join, uh, we are up to 760 members in less than two years. Uh, what motivated a group of us to form it were well, a number of things. Uh, partly for, mostly for fellowship among Catholic scientists. Mm. Because as you say, uh, Catholic scientists, religious scientists can feel isolated. Because even if there are in their department or their lab other believers, they're not always aware of that fact. Hmm. Or an undergrad or a graduate student may feel like he or she is the only one in their, in their department. I felt that way when I was an undergrad at Columbia and a grad student at Princeton. I didn't know of any of my professors who were religious. Really? I could not have named a world-famous scientist alive at that time who I knew to be religious. And it's not because they're not there. It's because often they, they, they keep in the closet or they keep a low profile mm. because uh, it's a self-fulfilling thing. They, they, feel they're out of, they might feel a little bit out of step. And in, in the academy, you know, in the academic world, if you think you're a little out of step, you kind of tend to keep a low profile because you don't want people judging you. And, mm-hmm. and that, but that reinforces it because everyone's keeping a low profile. <laughs> and so I'll give you one example. One of my colleagues in my department I was a colleague of his for 25 years before I found out that he, too, was a practicing Catholic. No I just way. found out by accident. And, that's, and so it's partly for fellowship. Uh, we want all these Catholic scientists to come out of the closet and, uh, and meet each other and form a community. Also to witness to the world, to show the world at large and the other scientists, you know, we're here and there are a lot of – we are legion. Yeah. There are a lot of us, yeah. including many – Top, uh, you know, world famous, uh, top flight scientists, leaders in their field. So um, that's that's part of the reason, and also for discussion. And we have serious. We want to have a forum for discussing science and religion and their relation to philosophy mm-hmm. and theology mm-hmm. and so on. And you use your real names. There's no aliases. Do we you use our mean? real. Okay. Well, actually, that's an interesting thing. On our website, we have a member directory, oh. but it is only for members to see, and because it can. You know, I'm not don't want to make people paranoid, but there are fields of science where it can hurt your career, especially if you're young, if you're vulnerable, you're not a tenured professor. Uh-huh. And so um, uh, we, we are very careful that young people who join, their identities will not be known. Hmm. Um, 
even to other members. Is that uh, if right? they, yeah, so, so we have to build that in. So there, in physics, I don't find much um, reason to fear, but I'm told that in certain fields of science, uh, if you're especially in the biological sciences, I'm told, uh, and certain others, if there are people who are simply afraid to have their colleagues know about their religious beliefs. Is that right? Yeah. But but anyway, but if by joining our society, you will come to our conferences and meet a lot of others. And, and, and there's a member directory, which only members can see. Okay. Which, uh, you could host your conferences over Halloween. Everybody can come to costumes. <laughs> costumes, you know? yeah. Well, yeah. and that's, you know, oddly enough, that's uh, something like that is shared even among theologians. Like, you, you almost can't be seen as too much of a practicing uh, believer right. Catholic um, Sometimes it could have detrimental effects in the academy there. I wonder, in this regard, uh, in the scientific disciplines, what what in the academic world is dangerous or perceived as dangerous to somebody, you know, actually being known as a, as a right. believer? It doesn't mean they're going to do uh, less rigorous science. Right. It just... They're also saying, you know, I'm Catholic. Right. I mean, most of our members, I think, are very upfront and open about it. Mm-hmm. And But we have the uh, the point is we don't – to join our society doesn't mean you have to be. Right. You can be as private about it as you want. Right. But I would say most of our members are, are quite open, and, uh, and and that's part of, the, as I say, the reason for existing is to show the world uh, that we exist. And as, as part also to mentor young people and give them role models. That's really interesting. I'd love to talk about that a little bit. So especially for uh, these younger students, undergraduates, maybe even high school students into their graduate studies later on, uh, who are in the STEM disciplines, um, who are being, you know, we're putting more and more emphasis on developing these capacities uh, that come from these disciplines. Um, How, you know, you were talking about your own undergraduate experience and not knowing anybody who was a Catholic and also a scientist. What do you think this will do for those younger people who are coming into uh, the sciences to have these role models who are excellent in their field but also happen to practice the same faith? Right. I think think it'll be a great morale booster, uh, um, you know, give them confidence. Because otherwise, if you think you're the only one that believes something in your environment, you mm-hmm. can often begin to doubt yourself and say, am I an oddball? Is this a, Am I crazy or is everybody else crazy? <laughs> but the fact is, uh, what we're going to show people is, I think, and are starting to show people, is actually, as I said, we're, we're quite numerous. And I think a young person will, uh, all I can say is at our first conference, we had 80 members show up, many of them young. And there was just a tremendous enthusiasm and delight. For the first time in their life, they'd been in an environment where they were surrounded by a huge ballroom full of scientists who were all Catholics who could pray together and be open about their faith. It, it was like, I think, they felt like a fish who's been put in water for the first time. Oh. You know, because scientists in the first several hundred years of modern science, right. they were all religious. Right. That's a natural environment. Right. But now in our day... Because so many keep down their heads down, they're sort of put in this artificial thing where they can't talk about their faith freely among their scientific colleagues. Well, now they have a place where they can do that. Mm-hmm. Indeed, we're talking about the Society of Catholic Scientists with the president of that association, Dr. Stephen Barr of the University of Delaware, where he serves as professor of physics. Going on that, you know what? What do you think is this perceived contradiction uh, or the impressions about religious faith? Um, for scientists, what is that perceived contradiction doing to 
our young people, the way they think, you were talking about this, the way they think about themselves, they think about their world. Yeah, they've absorbed a lot of this, uh, of these ideas. I did too when I was young, because mm. a lot of the story of science, the history of science is told in a way that there has always been this warfare, this conflict, and uh, I was brought up thinking that too. Um, and I think I think it causes a lot of stress and tension for young people. Mm. Um, a lot of them would like to believe in God, really be religious, but they're told by their classmates, oh, how can you be re- How can you reconcile? How right. can you be both? Uh, and a lot of it's based on people's misunderstanding of scientific history. They think that history of science is filled with atheists. It's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, all the great founders of modern science for the first few centuries, almost all of them were religious. It's based on misunderstandings of what religion teaches, and it's based on misunderstandings of what science has discovered. It's Both just bad science and bad religion. Right. I mean, a yeah. lot of people just don't understand the science or the religion, right. and so they come to these really weird conclusions. And this is no small point. It's not just among uh, young people who are entering into the scientific discipline. Study after study that I've that I've read, they're all over the place. Um, show that, especially among young people, teenagers, young adults, the overwhelming entrenched view among them is that science and religion are, in the end, ultimately incompatible. Right. Right. Like in the end, these two things can't go together. And so, for those who try to hold on to uh, religious belief, they're doing it against the grain, making yeah. an exception in some part of their mind and their soul. Um, I mean, that's, again, that's part, in a lot of cases, that's because they, they even, I have to say, even many young Catholics, young Christians, mm-hmm. don't know enough about the intellectual traditions of Christianity and, and the Catholic uh, Church in particular. And they have simplistic ideas about uh theology and philosophy mm-hmm. that that uh, and they leave them unequipped to to really integrate these in their own mind they don't know how to integrate what they know from science and what they believe as as Catholics uh, and there are uh, this integration not reconciliation but to have an integrated worldview is is something that's actually not that difficult to achieve uh, to some extent our society is an answer to something John Paul, St. John Paul II said uh, about 30 years ago. He asked Catholic scientists, he said, Catholic scientists are an important res- resource for the church because they can help their, their fellow Catholics uh, integrate uh, religion and, and, and science in their own intellectual life. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what we want to Those of us who sort of have an integrated view of things uh, want to help other people come to a more integrated understanding. Indeed. And to that end, for the last several years, you've been joining us here at, at Notre Dame uh, for a seminar that we host in our own institute, the McGrath Institute for Church Life, on science and religion, working with uh, teachers, both theology teachers and teachers of the sciences from Catholic high schools who come together in one seminar to learn from each other, to, be, uh, to have excellent presentations from yourself and others on uh, science matters and on religious theological matters, and for the scientists to listen to the theologians and the theologians to listen to the scientists to develop new pedagogies, uh, to think together, to integrate their disciplines. What have you learned from that experience, or what are your hopes for some of these teachers in these Catholic high schools in the respective disciplines? Right. It has to start in high school. 
the trouble is, uh, when by the time a student gets to college, it may be a little too late in many cases. Indeed. He's off on his own, away from his family, away from his parents, and then he's exposed to these challenges to his faith, and he's into, he or she is intellectually unequipped to deal with them. So it's very important that education in this area begin in high school. And fortunately, in, uh, programs like this McGrath Institute program uh, are, are very important. It's just starting, but I think we're on a roll. And there's very good books. There's a wonderful book uh, that's uh, uh, for, for, meant as a textbook for Catholic high schools on science and faith, uh, written by Christopher T. Baglow, hmm. that I recommend. It's a wonderful book. Who so starts materials, with us. Yeah, yes, and fact. he's going to be coming to McGrath uh, mm-hmm. uh, this summer uh, to be head of some of these programs. Right. So m- I also noticed uh, bishops are beginning to get very interested in this. The Society of Catholic Scientists has been contacted by archbishops and bishops around the country. Great. The church is waking up to the problem, and, and things are beginning to be done. Indeed. We're drawing near to the end of our time, okay. so I want to get to just a couple more questions. Uh, one in particular, I heard in a previous interview you gave that mm-hmm. somebody asked you, you know, if you could ask one question to God, what question would it be about science? And you said, you know, I'd like to ask, is the universe infinitely large or a finite size? Right. Why that question, and what are the uh, the repercussions of that question? Well, you know, it's a very weird thing. Our, our car- People don't realize this, but in our current theory, in the standard Big Bang model, th- there's two possibilities. It could be infinitely large or it could be finite. And there's... N- may never be possible to determine by observation which it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, there's weird things. If the universe were infinitely large, it means it would be an infinite number of habitable planets, probably an infinite number of planets with life. You can actually, there's a very strong physics argument, that there would be an infinite number of planets that were virtually identical to ours, meaning there would be a planet where Steve Barr and Leonard and, and we're s- sitting in a room that's virtually identical to this, uh-huh. saying the same words and so on. It's kind of scary. Yeah. So it, it makes a big difference whether the universe is just very big or infinitely big. Right. And as I said, we probably will never, science will probably never be able to answer that question. So it's, it's, there's, there's actually a lot of really big questions that science, unfortunately, will never be, yeah. probably never be able to answer, like what happened before the Big Bang, if anything. Right. Yeah. Well, very good. How about we leave it there? Okay. What happened before the Big Bang? There's our cliffhanger for a follow-up conversation, hopefully at some point. We have been joined today by Dr. Stephen Barr, the University of Delaware Professor of Physics, also the president of the Society of Catholic Scientists. If you're listening, please check out some of his books. Uh, I highly recommend Modern Physics and Ancient Faith out from the University of Notre Dame Press or The Believing Scientist, another one of his titles among several others. Thank you, Dr. Barr, for sharing your time with us today. We very much appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Pleasure. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life Today.